Welcome to Nocturnal Emotions, everybody. I am your host, Sean Tillman, a.k.a. Harmar Superstar, taking you on a flight of fancy into the nighttime where the feeling is so, so right. Uh, normally, I have conversations with people uh, that I love and admire, um, but I've been really busy on tour. Like last week, uh, this week, I'm reading, I'm continuing the read on LL Cool J's 1998 autobiography, I Make My Own Rules. It's thrilling. The story is getting more and more compelling. We learn a lot more about his, the beginnings of his hip-hop career this week uh, and just you know how he was a troubled teen. So uh, I think it really will hit home with a lot of us, a lot of us out there. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's been hard to get guests and get things together since I've been on tour. I've been flying around like a crazy person. In the last week, I played Seattle and Portland, flew, black, flew, flew back to New York, the one night off, played a show, flew back from there straight to Santa Cruz and performed two nights in a row there in a Big Sur. Finally have a little downtime to record this for you and uh, I continue on. You know, I'm playing with Yeah Yeah Yeahs all over the place right now. Uh, last show with them on this tour is in Phoenix uh, this week on Wednesday. So if you're around, guys, Phoenix area, Tucson people, come on out to the awesome show at the Marquee Theater. Um... Yeah, other than that, uh, I have not had time to do anything else, which is great. I love to be busy. So uh, that that's really it for now. So um, I guess without further ado, I hope you guys are enjoying this series. I really love reading these books aloud. Um, I, you know, I'm definitely going to try try to get some more guests in, in, in the studio, but uh, I love this option for the weeks that I can't. Um, here we are. Here we go. Uh, the next few chapters uh, in our series, Volume 2, of my reading of LL Cool J's autobiography, I Make My Own Rules, with Karen Hunter. Here we go. Enjoy. Junior Cry School. Roscoe helped me twist up my school life, too. After a while, it was like Roscoe, like Todd. He would beat me, and I would turn around and beat up the kids at school. Naturally, I got a reputation around my way for fighting all the time. I would fight anyone, anywhere, anyhow. I didn't need a reason. Like Roscoe, I became a bully. Win or lose, I saw his face every time I snatched some kids' lunch money, chocolate milk, or cookies. When I was nine years old, I had a fight with this kid at school. I don't remember why we were fighting, but whatever he did, and he probably didn't do anything much, my response was totally extreme. Besides winning the fight, I kicked the kid in the mouth three times. Back then, I watched a lot of Bruce Lee movies, and I used to practice his move in my grandparents' basement. So I used my Enter the Dragon moves on this kid, and I gave him repeated roundhouses to the ear, nose, and throat. It was pretty ugly. For him. An older kid came down the street out of nowhere and broke it up. He looked at me completely disgusted, but I didn't care. In my mind, I had just exercised some of the demons that had been haunting me. I couldn't fight back in my house. I was defenseless there. But on the streets, I wasn't going to let anybody else beat me, not without a good fight. By the time I was 13, people around my way were calling me a wild man. What I see now is that Roscoe's constant beating changed me. I went from this normal kid who got straight A's and loved school to the troublemaker. Not that I was ever the quiet type in school, but I wasn't really bad when I was young, just mischievous, mainly because I was bored most of the time. 
I can remember in the first grade during reading time, the teacher started some book about a cat. She began reading, The yellow cat jumped. Before she got to the yell and yellow, I blurted out, Stop reading so slow! That was the first time I was thrown out of class, but it definitely wasn't the last. In the fifth grade, I used to shoot spitballs and would crawl around on the floor like I was going through a cornfield or something, all the way to the front of the room. When the teacher would look down, there I was looking for a dress. I was looking up there, looking up the dress. I also had these shuriken Chinese stars I used to throw in the bulletin board. When the teacher turned her back to write on the front board, I would throw a star to the side bulletin board. I got thrown out of class for that, too. But all of that was in good fun. School was a break for me, a place to laugh and learn. During the Roscoe era, though, it became torture, just like home. When we moved to North Babylon, I found myself in a predominantly white school. It was a different world. A real culture shock for me, coming from my grandparents' Queens neighborhood, which was almost all black. I'd never felt like a minority and never really experienced racism. The first time was in the sixth grade. I was walking down the hall behind some white kids, and one of them said something about the N-word. They all started laughing, and one of them turned around and saw me. They were like, sorry. I couldn't believe it. So that's what they really think of me. Of course, the word new was nothing new for me. I heard it every day from Roscoe, which, if you think about it, is really unfortunate. He was all, like, constantly barking out, N-word, clean the yard! Take off my shoes, N-word! N-word, do this! N-word, do that! But hearing it at school made me realize how terrible it was to have to hear it at home. Things were getting bleaker for me by the day. I was angry in my school. I was always fighting in the neighborhood. My childish, my childish mischief turned into sheer terror for the other kids. I was a bully. I didn't care who I fought or why. I was turning into a prepubescent Roscoe. And it certainly, certainly didn't help matters being shuffled back and forth from Queens to Long Island. There was a tug of war between Queens and Long Island, my grandparents and my mother. I would spend one year in Queens schools and then one year in Long Island, but I spent most of my middle school and junior high school years in Queens at Susan B. Anthony Intermediate School 238. There was this girl who used to tease me constantly during my first year of junior high. She was bigger than me and very fat. No slang intended. She teased me about everything, from the size of my head to my skinny legs, and she was relentless. Now, I was raised to never put my hands on a girl, so I warned her to leave me alone, but I think she must have liked me or something because she wouldn't stop. Every day she pulled on my shirt, smacked me in the head, kicked me in the shin, and hit me. She was the worst, a walking nightmare. Just the sound of her voice gave me goose pimples the size of milk duds. I used to carry this bag to school that my grandfather gave me. The kids in school in Queens used to tease me how it looked black and white stripes and kind of looked like a pocketbook, so they called it my jail bag. I kept a lead pipe wrapped in black masking tape in the bottom of it, just in case. I also used to attach a big safety pin to the inside of the jacket and slip a butcher knife through the pin so that the hilt caught on the pin. I look back now and realize how foolish it was, but that was the mindset, and fear drives you to do some strange and stupid things. Where we lived was nice, but... Up on Farmer's Boulevard, where we had to pass to get to school, was a nightmare. Older kids would wait for us on the corner to take our money, our bus passes, or whatever we had, so I kept my bag and my butcher knife close by. 
I was shopping on Jamaica Avenue one time for some sneakers. I had my bag and I was heading to the E-Train and these guys came up to me and asked what I had in the bag. I pulled out my butcher knife and they started running. Came in handy that day. One day, we're about to leave a class and the big fat girl had been harassing me for what felt like an eternity, grabbed my bag and tried to punch me in the nuts when I wouldn't let it go. That was it. I went buck wild and punched her in the face. She fell forward on her nose and I started punching her in the back of her head and kicking her in the ass. It shook a little. And I was yelling, I'm sick of you, the whole time. The teacher tried to stop me, and I turned the teacher's desk over. I was crazy. I was also suspended. Before he suspended me, the dean looked at me and said, You got trouble. Do you know who her brother is? I didn't. But a couple of days later, I found out. He showed up at my house, and he was big. Someone who was no longer a friend after that had showed him where I lived. He said, I hear they call you pretty boy, you running shit. 38, huh? We gonna see about that. I'm thinking to myself, pretty boy. That must be what she was calling me. Because I knew I wasn't no pretty boy and I wasn't running anything anywhere. What was he talking about? You beat up my sister? Now I'm gonna do you. He was a patient thug. Not wanting to get busy in front of my house, but the next day, he and a couple of his boys came up to the school. I was sitting outside, chilling on a bench with my face resting in my hands. I didn't see him coming. One of the guys tried to kick me in the face, but hit my hands. I stood up. I didn't have the butcher knife on me, but I had plan B, my switchblade. And I pulled it out of my jacket. They all backed up. But then I thought, yo, I don't want to stab one of these kids and kill them. So I put away the knife, and we started a fist fight. The gym teacher, Mr. Asher, broke it up. So me and these guys had an ongoing beef for the whole summer. They lived on the other side of Farmers, so it was no problem as long as I didn't cross that line and vice versa. One week, my man Cal wanted, wanted me to go with him to check a girl who lived on that side of town. Cal also had some beef with somebody over that way who had shot at the ground in front of him for no reason the last time he was over there. So he wanted to go there and settle the score. But Cal was real scared. I had a plan. I told him not to worry. Yo, so what if the kid is a little bigger and a little taller? Just get a handful of salt, and when he starts coming at you, throw it in his eyes and beat him down. I'm coaching him. The whole walk over there. He's got the salt, and he's sweating bullets. We get there, and we see the kid, and he's coming towards us. Cal throws the salt, but he was sweating so much that the salt had mashed up into one big lump, like a little pebble, and it just hits the kid in the forehead. Oh, so you want to throw rocks, the kid said, and he commenced brutalizing Cal on every level. It was one-on-one, -on -one, and you know the code of the street is you can't jump in on a one-on-one -on -one fight. When they stop, Cal's just a mess. So I say to this kid, I'm going to fight you, my man. So it's me and the kid that got the best of Cal. <laughs> I don't waste any time, man. I hit him in the face, hit him again, he backs up. Ah, that's weak, the kid said. Yeah, right. I'm getting ready to smooth him out good when one of his friends steps in and says he wants to fight me. I say, yo, he just beat up my man. And the kid whose name was Bammy B says back, yeah, but that's my man. So we started up and a crowd starts forming. It was like the whole neighborhood was out there ready to jump in. Hit him in the chin, the crowd they kept yelling from the crowd that kept yelling. So the kid starts aiming for my chin. Every time he aims for my chin, 
I make him miss. I'm ready for it, obviously. One time he tries to hit me and I catch him with a left hook and he goes right through the open window of a parked car. There's a man in the driver's side and he pushes the kid back out of his car. The kid steadies himself and says, You got heart. This is Bammy Beat, boy. This is Bammy Beat. And he charges me. I tackle him onto the ground and the other kid who was fighting Cal pulls me off. I'm going buck wild at this point, but I also notice that this fight is getting a little out of hand. It's turning into a mob scene. Kids, old ladies, dogs, cats. So I catch Cal's eyes and we start jetting. All I hear is, yo, get him! The whole neighborhood is chasing us. It was like something out of a movie. We almost made it across town and we had to stop because we were tired. Cal asked me if he was bleeding and I told him he was, but he'd be okay. A, cu- a couple of the guys from the crowd caught up with us. I saw them and got in, the- got in gear, man. They caught my man, but I kept on running. That was the worst. I admit it. I can't front. I went out like jello. Forgive me, Cal. They took my man up to the park, which was like their headquarters. I went home and was sitting in the living room with this wild look on my face. I was worried about Cal, thinking about all the crazy things they might be doing to him. My moms came in and asked me what, I was, what was wrong. I said nothing. But she kept asking me what was the matter, so I broke down and I told her what happened. My mom's was always a trooper. She said, all right, then let's go get him. We get back to the park. They have Cal in a parked car. These two girls are trying to protect him from a mob of people jumping up and down on the car, hitting it with bats. It's crazy. My mother runs her car up on the curb and honks the horn. I start yelling out for Cal, make a break for it. The mob turns to our car. And when they do, Cal jumps out and we swerve around, pull him in, drive off. People are screaming like, we are gonna fuck you up. I'm gonna get you. But we got away. That time. Around this time, I joined the 5% Nation, a religious sect that believes the black man is God. This guy in my neighborhood hit me off with some of the doctrine. I talked about humanity beginning in Africa and how the black man was the first man on earth. So the black man is God because all humanity originated there. I felt power belonging to this group and I was looking for that. I wanted to belong somewhere and there was finally a family vibe with the members. We had a crew, a clique of people who had my back. My 5% name was Lord Supreme Shalik, but it wasn't all good. Being a 5%er was nothing more than a license to be brutal. At its core, there's a strict religious doctrine, but we weren't following that. We were just using the 5% label as a shield to do our dirty work, fighting and eventually robbing. At a point in time, I even started carrying guns that I had taken from my grandfather's closet. Since he was an old army man and auxiliary policeman, there were guns all over the house. I started off just holding them, feeling the steel in my hand. One time, though, I was in the attic, my favorite hiding place, holding one of those guns and just pretending I was shooting it off. I put some ammo into it just to feel like I was the man, but it actually went off. I was like, oh, God! Yo, I was so glad nobody was home and nobody was hurt. I was so scared at first, but then I got this rush. I wanted to shoot it off again, and I did. Some afternoons, I used the attic wall as target practice. I thought, If I shot out the window, I might accidentally kill somebody, but if I shot into the walls, the bullets would stay there. I covered up the bullet holes with some boxes and my Pope John Paul poster. By the way, I sang for him with the St. Bonaventure Choir in 1979 at Shea Stadium. We did Ave Maria. Ain't that wild? There's still holes in the attic walls where I shot off that thirty-eight. I I would carry guns, just waiting for someone to mess with me so I could 
put a cap in him. I was a very troubled young man. In those days, there were a couple of bullies in the neighborhood. Older guys used to steal our lunch money and terrorize us. One time I was walking with my piece in my pocket, and one of them started bothering me. I pulled the gun on him. I know he must have wet his pants, running and ducking behind cars. I don't think I would have shot him, but then again, I don't know for sure. One of the guns I carried wasn't even loaded, but having them gave me a sense of protection and a sense of power. Fighting also gave me that power. So did terrorizing and abusing others, I'm ashamed to say. When I was in junior high, I used to go out to different high schools in Long Island to mug kids. We would go to Long Island where the kids had more things to take, and we would snatch their leather bombers and sheepskin coats. We'd go up to Elmont High School and go on robbing sprees. I didn't need the stuff. My family pretty much gave me what I wanted, but it was a power thing. I used to sneak the stolen goods into my closet, and when my grandmother or mother asked me where I'd gotten something, I'd say, my man gave it to me to borrow. Like they were going to believe that. I was a really confused kid who wanted to be cool, who wanted to fit in and simply didn't know how to. I wanted to be down, to be part of the crew, and I thought being cool meant I'd drink a few 40s, rob a couple people, carry a knife, carry a gun, and be menacing. How ridiculous was I? I guess I was good at being ridiculous. I was ruthless. If a kid gave, gave us a fight giving up his stuff, he would get an old-fashioned beatdown. After getting hit two or three times, the guy would just hand over the jacket. There are a lot of kids like I was. I mean, I know I was far from being cool. The way I used to act was real corny. It was impotent. I became powerless to control the violence that had taken hold of me. I became the same impotent demon that was abusing me. I was abusing other people and myself just like Roscoe did to me. It was an evil cycle. I'm not trying to excuse myself from the violence I was perpetrating by blaming Roscoe. I just eventually realized I'd become Roscoe. I wasn't just abusing other people, though. I was also abusing myself, doing his work for him. And at the end of the day, I started hating myself. My mother was fed up. She thought I needed a man in my life, so she got in contact with my father in California and asked him to take me for the summer. But he was too busy, so he suggested she send me to stay with my uncle, his brother, in Florida. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. No disrespect to my uncle, and I've had a few. My uncle lived in Tampa, one of the most uncomfortably humid parts of Florida. There were alligators and mosquitoes everywhere, and it was unbelievably hot. The heat was vicious. I was miserable. I called New York every day begging to come home and my mom kept saying no. But I was calling my friends just to keep up on everything that was going down around my way. I think I ran their phone bill to about $1,000 that first month. And they were poor. Seriously broke. They didn't even have air conditioning. If I sat in a tub and ran cold water to cool off, they would complain about the water bill. It was that tight. I was going nuts. What made it even worse, my uncle's wife had a niece who lived down the block, and she had a crush on me. She said I looked just like Leon Isaac Kennedy from those penitentiary movies. I was like, thanks. She was nasty, heavy set, and I think she had a couple of teeth missing. I had a choice of sleeping on this urine-smelling mattress where some old lady had died or this stinky black pleather, you know the fake plastic leather, couch. It was so messed up that you woke up with this black gooey stuff all over your body because the heat would melt the pleather. This girl really liked me and I thought about getting involved in some extracurricular. I opted for the nasty mattress because it was more comfortable and there was no way that couch could hold both of us, so... One night, I get in that funky bed with this girl who is not my type. I was absolutely not attracted to her, no offense. 
but I was willing to give it a shot. Plus, I was bored beyond belief. I look at her face, and she smiles this toothless, toothless, toothless grin. Yikes! I close my eyes, and I try to do it, but I'm like cooked linguine. Ain't nothing happening. No matter what she does, it just isn't working. So I kiss her to try to console her, and she says, It's okay. Just hold me. While I'm holding her, the radio in the background is playing new additions. Is this the end? I'm thinking, it just might be. After that, I, would, I decided I would just leave that alone. I wrote rhymes, ran up my uncle's phone bill, and fantasized about my aunt. She wasn't my blood aunt, just my aunt by marriage. She would walk around the house with these short, short Daisy Dukes on. She did a lot of gardening in those shorts and would be bending over a lot. and You could see everything. It was torture for me. I would get the hose and run it over my face to cool off, and this heavyset girl with the missing teeth would pop her head in my bedroom window looking for love. Nah. That was how I spent my summer vacation. I didn't have many fights down there, but it was definitely brutality. When I came back for school that fall, I continued getting in trouble. Cutting class, fighting, cruising the hallways, and generally wreaking havoc. I was in the principal's office every other day. One time I took the master key off a guy who had stolen it from the janitor's key ring. It opened every room in the school. I used to forget my books and I would let myself back into the school to get them. On my many travels cutting class, I found this tiny room about the size of a small coat closet. It had a mattress in it and a little lamp and a small table. That's where I would cut class and take my afternoon nap. In school. Even then I had to get my sleep. On the other days I would use the master key to spy on the girls. There was a maintenance box in the boys' bathroom that led inside the walls where electricians would change the fuses and stuff. I would climb through that door into the wall and wiggle around through the wires and the grates until I got to one of my, the front of my girls' bathroom. Me and my man Shorty would sneak in there all the time and watch the girls go into the bathroom and listen to them gossiping. It was fun. One day we went there and we heard the girls giggling. We know you're in there, James, one girl said. In school, they always called me James. At home in Queens and Long Island, in the neighborhood, they always called me Todd. In my football world, they called me Jimmy. Todd and James always separated who I knew and where I knew them from. Anybody I knew from school would say, What's up, James? Anybody I knew at home would be like, What's up, Todd? So there was always that duality with the names. After the girls shouted us out a few seconds later, we heard footsteps and keys jingling. It was too late to make a run for it. We were cold busted. The security guard escorted us to the principal's office. As the principal walked me out of school, I was suspended. He had his arms around my shoulder, and he was smiling at me. You're a very creative boy, James, he said. About this time, I could have easily turned into a guy going buck wild because I'd literally gone crazy from being abused. I could have easily gone in that direction, and now I see how that happens to so many kids. But on the plus side, I had my grandparents, the church, the McCulloughs, and my mother to keep me somewhat grounded. And I was involved in some activities, karate, wrestling, gymnastics, and especially football. I played Little League football for about four years in Long Island. I started out as a nose guard, and as I grew, I played tailback. I even won a couple of rushing titles, but you always need someone to show you the way through a rough road. And there was Mr. Asher, Joel Asher. My gym teacher at IS-238 taught me another side to being a man. He now coaches August Martin High School girls basketball team, which has taken the city championship seven of the last nine years, including this year. But back then, he was Mr. Asher, a father figure. 
Of course, my grandfather was there, but Mr. Asher was younger and he was around me every day. The fact that he was white was beside the point. He was a symbol of strength. He got interested in football, basketball, and boxing, sports I still love today. But more importantly, he was the first man other than my grandfather who conducted himself like a man and showed me respect. And he didn't take any crap. He used to have this plastic bat that he used to threaten us with. Everyone was afraid of him and his bat. But he wasn't abusive with it. And we all knew what behind the plastic bat was love. He really cared about us. And he wanted us to do well and act right. He wasn't beating us down so that he could feel good about himself or make us small. He wanted to make us stronger. And that's the difference between Mr. Asher and Roscoe. And that's the difference between Mr. Asher and my math teacher who always used to tell us how stupid we were and how we would never amount to anything. He was the absolute worst. Then there was Miss Bieberman, my Spanish teacher and the first teacher I had a crush on. She used to wear these tight pants every day and she had nice legs and a nice culo. I guess I learned something in her class. I would sit in her class with my head down on my desk and peek through my folded arms. I was going through puberty at the time and she'd just about anything, just about anything at that point excited me. While other kids were conjugating, I dreamed of copulating. Do I hear lyrics? Miss Bieberman used to blast me for not paying attention, but she used to always say, say to me, James, one day I'm going to see you in the papers. Little did she know it would be for having platinum albums, winning a Grammy, having a television show, or starring in movies. Thank God. It was around this time that I started getting more and more into rap, which was big in my neighborhood. I would listen to tapes with kids from around my way up on Farmers, where the hottest new joints were always available. One day, while I was walking the halls at 238, this kid was walking in front of me singing Super Rhymes by Jimmy Spicer. And whenever you say disco, I say the beat, he rapped. Tastes like honey, and I say it's sweet. Yeah, I followed him down the hall in a trance. I said to myself, you know what? I like that. And as this kid walked out of the school doors into the street singing that tune, my interest in school walked right out with him. This week's episode is brought to you once again by Earthquaker Devices. Uh, friends of mine from Kent, Ohio, who are uh, on the international scene as far as, uh, you know, making uh, compression, distortion, delay, fuzz, modulation, octave, overdrive to run your guitar through or sing through just to get weird to in general they make quality devices quality pedals for you to rock out with and uh now if you use the offer code nocturnal when you check out on their website at earthquakerdevices.com uh you get 15 percent off not just 10 but 15 percent off your order and uh trust me they make some amazing amazing pedals that you want to check out so do yourself a favor play guitar in your bedroom and play it through an earthquaker device or two earthquakerdevices.com backslash nocturnal for 15 percent off support them support my friends support some people that are making great things possible booyah earthquaker devices back to the show Boom. I need a beat. Please listen to my demo. All I ever wanted was a dirt bike. A motorized dirt bike. I was 11 years old and it seemed like every cool kid in the neighborhood had one. So I wanted one too. 
I begged and begged, and it looked like I was making some headway. My grandfather said, I'll think about it. That was as good as I'm getting it to me. But instead of waiting for my own, I wanted to practice, anticipating getting one. One of my friends let me ride around on his. I almost got killed, but it was a blessing in disguise. My man gave me strict instructions on how to ride it. Something was wrong with the throttle, and he had a shoelace tied around the throttle lever and around the handlebars so that you could pull the string and give it gas. But he told me, if you stop, it might cut off, so don't stop. So I didn't. I was riding down Jordan Avenue in St. Albans, and because I didn't want the bike to cut off, I ran right through a stop sign, and, and I was hit by a car. I flew into the air and landed in someone's front yard. I wasn't hurt too bad. I was just disgusted. I left his dirt bike right there and walked home. I was scratched up, though, and bleeding. I tried to hide my injuries from my grandparents, but somehow my grandfather found out about the accident that was the end of the dirt bike dreams. But he had something better in store for me. I'd just come in one night, not long after, licking my wounds and feeling sorry for myself when my grandfather called me upstairs to the attic. He was with his best friend, Mr. Jacobs, who was like an uncle to me. I said hello, and my grandfather pointed to the corner. There sat two turntables, two speakers, a mixer, and a microphone. Yo! My eyes popped like ten feet out of my head and my mouth fell open. I was amazed. I couldn't believe my grandfather would do that for me. He was this West Indian man who was very frugal. I knew he couldn't understand why I would want some heavy equipment to scratch up some records, as he would say. And he definitely couldn't justify spending $2,000 for some 11-year-old to do that. To him, it was just ridiculous. But my grandmother convinced him, and they went together to pick it out. He set it up for me in the basement... In like an hour, he was such a wizard at fixing things. And that was the start of my rap career. With the equipment, I was able to experiment with sounds and tracks. I was able to create music and rhymes. I could stop dreaming and start doing. That dirt bike became a distant memory. When I got my equipment all hooked up, I couldn't wait to run across the street and tell my man what I'd gotten. All he could say was, So? He was just jealous, because he wanted equipment too. But I didn't care. I just went back to the house and started doing my thing. If getting, giving, sorry, if, sorry, if getting equipment gave me the tools to perfect my craft, the Sugar Hill Gang gave me the inspiration. It was 1979, and the Sugar Hill Gang was blowing up the charts with Rapper's Delight. They'd taken Sheik's Good Times, a song that had been out for a while, but was still rocking, and turned it into a rap song. It changed the face of music, and it was the Sugar Hill Gang, along with Africa Bambata and the Zulu Nation, who got me into rap. A lot of people looked back at Sugar Hill as some corny group, but... To me, they brought rap to a whole other level. They put rap on the map. I was 11 when I first saw the Sugar Hill Gang perform. It was at an old Harlem armory, not too far from the Apollo. They had been promoting this concert for more than a month in my neighborhood. There were flyers on every tree, light post, and brick wall in St. Albans, and I wanted to be there. Because for the first time, there was a form of music that literally spoke to me. Sugar Hill had had my voice. They rapped about things I could relate to or wanted to relate to. They rapped about women and money and money and women. They had checkbooks, credit cards, cars, and clothes. But I couldn't have cared less about the cars, the clothes, even the women. What they really had, what I wanted the most, was the power to say whatever they wanted. I mean, all those things were nice, but I never got into rap for the cars or the clothes or the women. I got into rap for the power. I wanted to be heard. I just wanted to make a record and hear it on the radio. It was just that simple. I begged my mother every day for a good two weeks to take me to that concert, and every day the answer was, no. Sometimes it was even, no, and don't ask me again. 
The night before the concert, though, my mother came into my room and pulled out two tickets. Yo! I couldn't believe it! I loved her for that. I loved her anyway, and I really loved her for that. I was so excited I could barely sleep. The next day, I got up early and got dressed in the flyest gear I had. Jeans, a real tight, tight, tight red t-shirt, and a jean hat. Of course I wore a hat. All I could think of was how good the show was going to be. I made moms take me there two hours early so I could see the groups arrive. We got to the armory early enough to get a spot at the barricade right out front. It was so early. They hadn't even opened the doors yet. More and more people started showing up, so I hugged that barricade like my life depended on it. I didn't want anyone to get in front of me. I saw the crash crew come in with their matching crash crew jackets, looking like a real group. I was in awe. I stood around for at least an hour and a half checking everything out. When the doors finally opened, I ran in and got right up front next to the stage. My mother went to find a seat, but I wasn't about to sit in a seat. I had to be where the action was. I didn't want to be looking over anybody's head. I wanted a clear shot at hip-hop. Besides the crash crew, the Funky 4 Plus 1 also performed. I remember their whole act. It was pure energy, and it was exciting, and the crowd was feeling it. Sometimes, though, it seemed like that all good things must come to an end. While the Sugar Hill Gang was performing, someone shot off a gun and all hell broke loose. People were running around and shoving and pushing. I jumped over the barricade and crawled under the stage, and all I could see were all kinds of feet shuffling and running, trying to get out. People were screaming and yelling. I don't know how, but somehow my my mother found me and grabbed me and dragged me just out of there. Nobody was hurt. Turns out someone just fired a gun into the air, but... I wasn't really surprised when she told me that that was the last time she was taking me to a show. She obviously had not felt the excitement and exhilaration I'd experienced. And she was not about to go back to another show where people got wild and rowdy and started shooting off guns and freaking. Stuff like that happens at rap shows today. That's why insurance is so high, and that's why ticket prices are ridiculous. I wish miserable people would stop making everyone else miserable. Then again, you know the cliche, misery loves company. But then I wasn't thinking about the consequences of actions like that. Frankly, I didn't even care, except for the fact that my moms said she wouldn't take me anymore. I figured she wouldn't have to, though, because I'd be up on that stage the next time. That concert gave me a yearning to go where I am now and do what I'm doing today. I could see myself up on stage with the mic in my hand, people screaming and rocking, and me just loving it. Sometimes I used to sit in my room and imagine I was a teacher in a classroom with a thousand students, and I'd be teaching in rhymes. Now... Now that it's a reality for me, though, I realize it's much more and much different than I ever imagined, and then some. I came home after the show and practiced my stuff in front of the mirror. At first, I hated my voice. It was nasal and just didn't sound good. It didn't sound like the guys on the records, but I kept practicing, trying to say words that sounded best coming from my voice. I know that sounds funny, but think about it. Can you hear Buster Rhymes on the first record? Woo-ha! Telling you he wants you to kiss a woman gently on her neck? I don't think so. Or Chuck D from Public Enemy. Bass. I want to make love. It doesn't work. But I kept listening to the great rappers and what made them great, and I found that each of them was doing rhymes and accommodated their voices. So I had to find mine. And I did. A hip-hop creature. Concert feature. Amateur teacher. My rhymes reach you. When I commence with excellence, it eradicates levels of pestilence. Upon a plateau, no mortal can go. Mythological characters stand below. After that, I thought every rhyme I ever did was the bomb. For the first time in my life, I had power. No one could tell me to shut up. I could say something, 
anything I wanted and not be afraid. I could be as powerful as I wanted to be. The music and rhymes helped me escape all the pain. It was an opportunity to dream. One thing about a pen and a piece of paper, nobody can stop you. You can just go wherever you want to go in the world, and lyrics and words, they follow. I'm on the move. It's 1765. No one knows what I escaped the plantation and built a spaceship and flew here. I can write that. Know what I mean? Psych. I'm really in bed Just kidding. I'm on another planet, the mirror image of the earth. Everything from here is opposite except that there's one sex and we mate mentally. Yeah, through words I could go wherever I thought to go. I would come home from school some days. I had my own keys and if I forgot my keys, I would climb in a back window that I always kept unlocked. And if Roscoe was out, I would play some of my mother's record albums on the sneak. My mother didn't know it then, but I was in love with music. I kept the secret so no one like Roscoe could spoil it. Sometimes I would stare at a record and imagine what the world was like inside the vinyl. Happy people having parties, having fun, laughing, loving. My reality at the time was that reefer cocaine and dirty magazines were all lying around the house. But I was getting high off Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Marvin Gaye and the OJs. When I went to my grandparents' house on the weekends, my grandfather was still cranking up his jazz at high volume. Miles Davis, Wes Montgomery, Richard Groove Holmes, and Freddie Hubbard were in a heavy rotation when I was a kid. But by now, I was digging at all that jazz. I would, I would even listen to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and even the Smothers Brothers. You believe that? Well, it's true. And I was learning to appreciate all kinds of music. I preferred some genres to others, but... I could recognize what was good and what wasn't so good. At home, I would try to sneak a little Richard Pryor when my mother wasn't home for comic relief. Homeboy cracked me up. I loved his mudbone routine, and he had jokes that were just off the wall crazy. He had this one routine about a pet monkey and a chandelier and a female monkey, and, well, all of Richard, Richard's jokes and nasty. Richard was crazy. I would usually go to school the next day and run his jokes for the kids. I wish I could run up my few favorite jokes here, but the early stuff, the really funny stuff, is a bit too off-color. Of all the different types of music, R&B was where I discovered what true love, the kind of love that I wasn't getting at home, was all about. One song that stuck out was Brandy. That guy really missed Brandy, and I could relate. I would lie on the living room floor, and he would be missing my grandmother and my grandfather listening to it. You know, I found out later that it was all fiction and that Brandy was a dog or something. But it didn't matter to me. I was feeling the soul of that song. Meanwhile, rap was getting strong and I was getting hooked. There were a lot of underground rap tapes circulating in my neighborhood in Queens and even some in Long Island and I listened to them all. Curtis Blow, Grandmaster Flash, and the Furious Five, and of course, the Sugar Hill Gang. With each new group, I got deeper and deeper into it and it got deeper and deeper into me. It was an escape into a fantasy world. The images were so vivid and so much better than real life. I was, I was living, you know, I was just hypnotized. There was a, a power in this rap music and it put me under a spell I've never come out of. Rap spoke to me and in it I found myself and the power of my voice. Rap music was my escape from a living hell. I guess I started rapping with kids around my way by Long Island when I was about nine, when Kenny and I began writing rhymes in the McCulloch's backyard. Before long, I was spending more time working on rhymes than I was on homework. By the time I was 13, I was itching to start the thing on the underground rap circuit where acts like Lovebug Starsky before me came famous. More than anything, I knew I wanted to make records, so I spent most of my time in the basement just making tapes. I was determined to be heard. 
Jay Philpott was one of the most popular DJs in my area. There were others, the Disco Twins, who were known Queenswide, and the Albino Twins, but Jay was Mr. Farmers. He was like big brother to me and just about all the other kids in the neighborhood. He, he had the biggest sound system, the hugest speakers, the best turntables, and the latest mixer. Several up-and-coming DJs in the neighborhood got together, calling themselves Ebony Sounds, and they all chipped in to buy the equipment. But it was stored at Jay's house because there was no disputing it. Jay was the man in charge. When Jay got on the tables, he did his thing. The scratching, the mixing, and that bass. You could feel it all the way to Ilian Avenue. He drew a crowd wherever he went. I wanted to grab the mic and rock with his beats, so I, so bad I could taste it. All summer I'd been begging Jay to let me get on the mic, but he looked at me like a little kid. I couldn't wait, you know. He kept telling me, maybe next year, kid. But I couldn't wait till next year. Next year is forever when you're 13. I'd been practicing and writing rhymes for almost two years. As far as I was concerned, I was ready. I finally wore him down by the end of the summer. He was doing a block party at 113th Avenue, and he came and got me. They set up the equipment. My fingers were itching to grab the mic and rock the party, but they were having te technical difficulties. There was a short in the wire, and they couldn't get it working. On the other side of the block, a rival DJ crew already had their sound pumping. I walked across the street and asked them if I could get down. They handed me the mic. Good Times was mixing with Dance to the Drummer, drummer Beat, blaring out of the Sirwin Vega speakers. The kid on the turntables was scratching some ill beats. Then he looked over at me. I was up. I ran down a routine I had rehearsed in my bedroom and in my head at school. When I should have been paying attention to Miss Bieberman, I rapped. People started looking up at me, stopping what they were doing. Even Jay had to pause and check to see if it was really me. I let it all roll out. It just flowed. And then I said, throw your hands in the air. Oh, and they did. And when I said, somebody scream, the block lit up with high-pitched screams of the ladies. I knew then that I had a captive audience. After the show, Jay blasted me for being a traitor. I wasn't supposed to rock. I was supposed to rock his set. But I was hungry. I couldn't wait for him and his crew to figure out what was wrong with their equipment. And there was a crowd just waiting to be Johnny Blazed. I was too young to understand the bad, the bad politics involved in breaking camp and performing on a rival set. I didn't care. I was just hungry. And those guys were willing to give me the chance. But even though Jay was angry, I knew he couldn't believe this little kid was rocking like that, and Jay was hard to impress. He was 5'11", 240 pounds, and nobody messed with him. He was the state heavyweight wrestling champion, and he later won a scholarship to Syracuse University. He wanted to be a teacher, and he, he was serious. He was the one in the neighborhood who always was breaking up the fights. I mean, he had a few, too. Like one time, I got into the fight with this guy, and he just moved in onto our block from Brooklyn. The kid wanted to fight because he thought he could. When I was coming up, I had a real innocent-looking face. I couldn't grow facial hair for the longest time, but I didn't have a size on me that I have now, either. Guys used to always try to punk me because I didn't look like a tough guy. Big mistake. This kid was one of them. He was short and stocky, and I was kind of tall and real thin. He was so short, I couldn't reach him to hit him in the head, and he couldn't reach up to hit me. So we're just standing there in the street, swinging at each other, and missing, generally looking stupid. And then one by one, his whole family comes out, acting like they want to jump in and help him. There were like 1,100 of them living in that house. Like 1,100 people cramped in a phone booth. Jay jumps right in the middle. He told them I had to fight this guy one-on-one. -on -one. Then he took the belt off his Lee jeans and said if anyone jumped in, he'd whoop their ass with his old-school black belt buckle. Black belt, old-school belt buckle. Sorry, guys. Nobody jumped in. 
Because I was a little mental, one time I even tried to fight Jay. We were on the road together in Philadelphia at the airport hotel. I thought he disrespected me about something. It didn't take much back then. And I jumped on him, but with like one hand, he pinned me down on the bed. I bet he couldn't do that now. He got up and I chased him and he ran into the bathroom and locked the door. I was so mad he wouldn't fight me that I was kicking and banging on the bathroom door. I should have been glad that Jay didn't come out. If he had, I definitely would have gotten jumped up and lumped up. That's what I'm talking about. After that command performance at the 113th Avenue block party, though, Jay started taking me places with him. He would come over and ask my mother or my grandmother permission to take me to a party to work with him. We might make 50 bucks, but I would do it for the free attention. I did it for the love of music, the love of holding the mic and rapping. By the beginning of the winter, Jay had dropped out of Syracuse and enrolled at City College. We started doing parties every other weekend. By now I was 14 and really feeling this thing called hip-hop. I wanted to perform all the time. I could hang out in joints like the Brown Door and Underground Club in Queens and listen to what was hot and try to get down. I'd be at house parties, basements, anywhere I could rhyme and just hold the mic. At the same time, I was buying or listening to every piece of rap I could get my hands on. I also started thinking about a record contract. I'd go to record stores and write down the labels of every rap record they had. Then I would send a tape to each label. CBS, Sugar Hill, Island, Tommy Boy, Electra, Profile, Enjoy. I imagined myself getting signed to anyone and becoming a huge star. But two weeks later, the letters started coming in. Most of them said it started the same way. Thank you for your interest in CBS Records. But, always that but. Within a few months, I was getting so many letters that had the but in it that it wasn't even funny. In the beginning, my mother and grandmother were right there with me, consoling me. But after a while, I was so frustrated, I didn't even want them to know. So I started hiding the letters, or just throwing them away. They knew what I was doing, but they never imagined where it would end up. None of the record companies were feeling my art. The letters kept coming in. Sometimes I wanted to cry, but I didn't. If I had cried, that would have meant my spirit was broken and I would have quit. But something inside me told me to keep trying. Keep trying. And I persevered. I can really relate to what young artists go through. Hell, what anybody goes through trying to make something happen in their lives. That's why I hardly ever turn down a budding rapper who wants some advice or who has a tape they want me to listen to. Because I've been there. I know what it feels like to be turned down or rejected, especially when you know you're good. So one day I'm sitting in my room with yet another rejection letter. I think it was from Sugar Hill, crumpled up, with this look on my face. My mom comes in and sees me with the paper. I told her there was no reason to continue. It seemed like nobody was going to give me a break. During this time, I had all kinds of false hope. First, Jay kept talking about his friend's cousin who worked at Electro, who was going to get us a deal. Every other day it was this friend's cousin getting us a deal. We were still waiting on one. Then this guy named Sam Curry, who had produced Hassan and 7-Eleven, a group that had a couple of big hits, like Living in the City, gassed me up. He told me he was going to get me a deal. He even sat down with my grandmother and explained what he was doing. I thought it was going to happen. He took me into the studio with Hassan to get a taste of what I could be doing, and I was hyped. I sat there one evening in the Power Play studio in Long Island City, Queens, and wrote a piece of I Need a Beat while they were recording. I was that inspired. But Sam Curry never came through, and I had enough rejection letters to start really a really good fire. And I was ready to give up. It was my mother who told me to keep going. She decided to put her part in, fulfilling my dream. She used her income tax return, about $600, and bought me a drum machine. I know how hard it was to part with money back then, but that drum machine was to change my life. 
I took it over to my man Frankie's house. Frankie, who we called Finesse, was another brother who could rock the turntables. He had some fly equipment, and I needed him to do the scratches for I Need a Beat. Thinking back, I really appreciate my family. It just shows how important family support is. I mean, every step of the way, my family was there to give me that little extra push or that big push to make sure I fulfilled my dream. That's love. We didn't even know how to program the machine. We ended up doing it manually, taping the beat on a cassette, and then while playing the cassette, rhyming over into another cassette. After we got the beat and the rhymes onto one cassette tape, Finesse came behind and we did the scratching, and boom, we had a demo. It wasn't great, but it was better than the other 50 or so I'd sent out. My last shot was this dude named Rick Rubin. He was a student at New York University who was making a name for himself as a producer. He had produced It's Yours by Tila Rock and Jazzy J, a pretty big rap hit. I found the 12-inch at the record explosion on Jamaica Avenue and copied his name and address off the back. I sent him my new record, the new demo. When I didn't hear from him right away, I called him. He also had his phone number on the back of the 12-inch. I can still remember the number, 212-420-4770. Called him every day. Sometimes I got the answering machine. This is Rick. Nobody's in right now. Leave a message. Beep. When I did get the Rick on the line, I didn't waste any time with formalities like, Hi, my name is Ladies Love Cool J. A mouthful, isn't it? That's why I shortened it to LL. And I sent you a tape. I just cut to the chase. Rick, did you get it? Was all I would say. Every day I would call him to see if he got it. Rick would say, You get the tape yet? He would say, No, not yet. Rick, you get it? Not yet. Little did I know, my tape was sitting in his junky dorm room in a big box of tapes with hundreds of other wannabe rappers. <laughs> Hello, Earwolf fans. This is Harmar Superstar of Nocturnal Emotions, here to let you know about my new album, Bye Bye 17. What you're listening to right now is the first single, Lady You Shot Me, and the rest of the album is full of sweet, saccharine soul, just as this. Cult Records will be releasing the album on April 23rd in the US and May 6th in the UK and Japan. So get ready, look out for it. Pre-order it now on iTunes for only $4.99, a limited time offer. You won't regret it. Go to harmarsuperstar.com for tour dates and cultrecords.com for more information on this glorious record. Bye Bye 17 by Harmar Superstar. You will love it. And I'm out. Back to the show. Escape to Planet Hip Hop. I came home from school and ducked into my grandparents' house through the side door. I couldn't tell you what I was wearing, but I know a hat was on my head. I don't know what the weather was like or even what day it was. All I remember is walking through the door and hearing those words that I've been waiting to hear for weeks. Make that a lifetime. Some guy named Rick Rubin called, my grandmother said, but I heard, Todd, you made it. Rick Rubin had finally called. Suddenly, it seemed that all those months of writing, sending out tapes, getting rejection letters, writing, sending out more tapes, getting rejected again and again, had paid off. One telephone call had made all the pain and torture and perseverance mean something. It was one of the happiest moments in what seemed to be a hard luck life. I called Rick and he said, I got it. He told me to come down to his office, which turned out to be his dorm room at NYU in Greenwich Village. He was going to school and producing rap at the same time. I caught the F train into Manhattan and was sweating the whole 50-minute ride. The train was humming as usual. 
but despite the nasty subway smell, the ride was pretty sweet. I got off that train and entered what was for me a new world. I had never been to the village, and it almost put me in culture shock. In Queens, everything was laid back and similar. The same people did the same things in the same places all the time. Here, all kinds of people were walking around, and I had no idea who they were, where they were going, or what they were up to. But none of that really mattered, because the only thing I was thinking about was meeting with Rick Rubin and cutting a deal so I could finally become a rap star. In life, though, nothing is never easy. Right when I was standing on the verge of getting it, getting it off, my grandfather had gotten sick and was in and out of the hospital a lot. I guess getting shot was finally catching up with him. He was having liver and kidney problems, so this meeting with Rick Rubin was even more important to me. I wanted to accomplish something big, not just for me, but for my grandfather, who had always had my back and always believed in me. On one of my last trips to the hospital, he had been lying in the bed with the radio on in the background. A song came on, and my grandfather said to my grandmother, There's Todd on the radio. She knew it couldn't be me and said, That ain't Todd. He yelled at her. You shut up, he said. It is too, Todd. Maybe being sick and lying in the bed with a lot of time to meditate, he could see where I was going before it actually happened. I found Rick Rubin's dormitory on University Place, the building had a doorman, and I had to wait for Rick to come down to the lobby to get me. As I stood there, I thought of all these great things to say, like, Yo, man, I'm ready to be a star, and there's plenty more where that came from. And then maybe I would hit him off with a rap I'd written the night before. But when he was finally standing there in front of me, all that came out of my mouth was, Yo, I thought you were black. I had been speaking to Rick for weeks, and I could have sworn he was a black man. But there he was, as he always had been, a Jewish white guy. And this was my rap producer? Hell no. I had always thought that rap music was produced by blacks. It was our music, our vibe. But obviously I was wrong, and I shrugged it off. Hey, I didn't care if Rick Rubin was purple and worshipped penguins. He could have been Ronald McDonald as long as I got a record deal. He laughed at my reaction of him, invited me up to the tiny room at the end of the hall. Mattresses were on the floor and record tapes were thrown everywhere. I could see how my tape would have gotten lost. In fact, if it wasn't for Ad-Rock or the Beastie Boys, I might still be sending in those tapes. You should see how many Def Jam gets now. Anyway, Ad-Rock had been chilling in Rick's room, rummaging through all the tapes, and somehow he fished mine out and played it. I guess he liked what he heard and brought it to Rick's attention. My man, Ad-Rock. Good looking out, baby. Rick and I talked for about an hour, and we did another demo on his equipment. He knew how to program his drum machine. I began to see what real production, even in a dorm room, was all about. I made up a rap right on the spot, and we called it Catch This Break. The hook went like this. If you're looking like it, <laughs> if you're looking for a jam that'll make you shake, buy this record and catch this break. <laughs> when we finished, we took the tape over to Russell Simmons' office on Broadway. Rick had told me that Russell was the man, the money man, and could make it all happen. Russell sat behind an old wooden desk in an office the size of a closet. A receptionist, Heidi Smith, was out front. It was. Far cry from the high-tech, super-luxurious corporate-style offices Russell has now. He listened to my demo and scrunched up his face. Nah, it's the same old thing, he said. That's just like the Treacherous Three and everybody else. It's the same old thing. But even though I'd just met him, Rick had my back. He convinced Russell to give me another shot, so we went back to the, the studio and recorded I Need a Beat. My man Finesse, who did the scratching on my demo, wanted to come, but his parents were hassling him about wasting his time with this rap thing. He was going to LaGuardia College, and they told him to make a decision. Go to school or be a fool. 
He said he really wanted to go to the studio with me, but he decided to listen to his parents and go to school that day. Now, I can admire, I admire that decision, but back then it was like, okay, next. I called this kid Philip, who I knew through my underground connections. He was a decent DJ who rocked over in Corona, Queens. He was the original cut creator and was featured on I Need a Beat. At the studio, I pulled out all the stops. I even called my grandmother, who's become my music consultant over the year. I played the cut over the phone, and she told me it needed more bass. Even though she wasn't particularly into rap, she knew music. She didn't have a choice living with my grandfather, and I knew if I could put down something my grandmother liked, I would have a hit. She hasn't disappointed me yet. Six platinum albums. Russell really loved I Need a Beat. And the next day, he and Rick formed Def Jam. They came up with some deal that would benefit them more than me, but of course I signed anyway. I didn't care at all. I really would have done it for free. Don't tell Russell. I just wanted to rap and hear my joint on the radio. Looking back on it, they were just being businessmen. Very good businessmen. It's all part of the game. I Need a Beat wasn't out a week before I'd, I heard, I'd heard it on the radio. DJ Red Alert gave a lot of underground rappers their starts by playing their demos on the radio, even before they had contracts and stuff like that. And he was playing my song on Kiss FM while he was talking about something. I don't know what he was saying, but I know that it was my record he was talking over, and man, that was an honor. The first time I heard the entire record was on a Friday night countdown on Kiss FM. I was hanging out on Farmer's Boulevard with a couple of my friends at a video game arcade when it came on. I just walked out. Someone came out and said, man, they're playing your joint. I just nodded. Stood outside on the street while everybody else was inside the game room enjoying my record. I wanted to feel that moment all by myself, to relish it. I was standing there smiling in a daze. You know those shots in movies where the camera pans around the guy? He's in focus and everything around him is blurry, out of focus? That was me. It was like time had slowed down. The earth was spinning half time and it was just me and my record. I felt so good. I felt I had kissed God. Rick and Russell set up all these performances for me all over the city. I had one problem, though, which was who to take with me. Philip, who was cut creator, finesse, or Jay Philpot, who had been down with me from day one. Uh, I don't know. Finesse eliminated itself, so it was down to Philip and Philpot. Uh, I had to do this one promotional, that means free, appearance at a club one night, so I brought both Philip and Jay. Phil did I need a break, and me and Jay did some of our old school stuff from around the way stuff. Jay and I just clicked. The crowd went wild. I know that's cliche, but that's what happened. I felt their energy. I don't know where Phil Philip ended up, but from that day, Jay Philpot became cut creator. Our first professional, meaning paid, performance together was a concert at Manhattan Center High School in Harlem. They turned the cafeteria into a concert hall by pushing the tables together to make a stage. The show was supposed to start at 7 p.m. on a Saturday, and we were supposed to be there by 6.30 p.m. The axle broke on the cut creator's old cutlass. Luckily, we weren't too far from the school and walked the rest of the way. It was June and already hot as hell, but we got there on time. Jay was paranoid about leaving his car in Harlem like somebody was going to steal a busted-ass cutlass with a broken axle. Right before the show, he ran down the street to check in on it. But when it was showtime, the only thing we were thinking about was rocking the house. We hadn't rehearsed. We didn't have to. We'd been performing together for so long, doing block parties, that we knew each other's moves. We knew everything. I ran out on stage. Cut Creator was ready. He was out there on his turntables, and I could feel the anticipation of the crowd. They were so hyped. I couldn't believe it. It's one thing to rhyme for your peeps around the way, but it's another to see total strangers going bananas for you. 
My single I Need a Beat had only just dropped, but it was playing on the radio in heavy rotation. I was feeling like I was becoming the man. And when I started doing my things, the girls started doing theirs. They were screaming and looking like they were going to pass out. Like the women at a Michael Jackson concert, you know? I'm wearing these tight-ass sweatpants, the ones with the double white stripe down the side. They call them booty chokers now, but back then, that was the style. I had on my white pumas and matching kangle, pulled down real low on my head. The ladies were letting me know what I, what I already knew, that I was looking good. Hmm. After the show, a bunch of girls were waiting for me at the stage, yelling, LL! LL! Yo, I was getting bum-rushed for my autograph. I signed napkins, school books, arms, legs, just about everything. I looked over at Jay and gave him a look that said, Oh yeah, this is it. And I had a permanent smile on my face. After the show, we had to worry about getting home because Jay's cutlass had died. It's hard enough getting a cab to go up to Harlem, let alone getting one to get out late at night. So we had to think fast. Jay decided to call the police and tell them somebody had hit us and kept on going. With the condition Jay's car was in, it was believable. They came, took a report, called us a tow truck. We ended up spending most of the $300 we made that night for the tow and getting home, but I didn't care. The whole experience had been priceless. Russell set up more and more concerts and promotional appearances. He also hooked me up with Cornell Clark, who was helping him manage other acts like Curtis Blow and Fearless Four, who were just coming out. Cornell was a strange guy who was into everything. He was a choreographer, nutritionist, singer, martial artist, you name it. Cornell would swear he had done it. <clears throat> to me, he was hilarious. First time I saw him, I couldn't stop laughing. He didn't mean to be funny, he just was. I was with Jay hanging in Russell's office at Def Jam, and he walks in with this man with about 15 folds on his face, like one of those wrinkly dogs, a Sharpay. When he talked, the different section of his face all moved in different directions. He was the funniest-looking guy I had ever seen. He introduced himself with a lot of bravado, confidence, and lisps. How you doing, you know? My name is Cornell Clark, you know? You know? How you doing, you know? I liked him already. He kept going, I'm in the managing artist, he said. I know that I can help you, too, with your nutrition, choreography, and dance steps. I can make sure you're a whole person. I can make sure that my artists are really being taken care of to the best of, to the best of my ability. I look at Jay, and Jay looked at me, and we just busted out laughing. Cornell rolled his eyes and kept on talking. Every time he opened his mouth, we laughed. But he was serious with stuff, and he wound up being one of the best friends I ever had. It was Cornell who convinced me to hang out on the set of the movie they were making uh, about rap called Crush Groove. He said, just go down there and let them feel your presence. They'll have to use you. They need you. He was right. If you watch the movie, you will see me in a whole bunch of different shots. In one, I'm pushing crates back and forth. In another, I'm walking by while two people are talking. I'm mopping up in another scene. I'm in a shot where I'm dancing with a group of people off stage. I was on the set so much every day begging to get on camera that I became an extra to the fifth power. Russell and Rick finally convinced George Jackson and Doug McHenry, who wrote and directed Crush Groove, to give me a cameo doing radio. Ironically, I was supposed to do a video of the song the same week, but I overslept. Jeff Def Jam lost $50,000 on the deal. Russell called me and went off. What? Are you crazy? You overslept. The crew was waiting. It cost us $50,000. To this day, I still have a problem getting up early in the morning. I schedule most of my meetings for late afternoon, early evening, so I can sleep for 16 hours at a time with no problem. I guess I got that from my mother. When she's sleeping, there's no waking her up. I'm the same way.
So my Crush Groove cameo ended up being my video for radio, my second single. It was perfect because it exposed me to a much wider audience than I would have had with just the video. At that time, MTV wasn't really kicking rap. Yo, MTV Raps was years away at that point. In less than six months, radio was a hit, and I began to realize my dream of making it, but before the success were pitfalls. First, my grandfather died. I came home from a performance, and my mother told me. All I could say was, oh. It was the single most painful event in my life. I couldn't even go to the funeral. And again, Roscoe was there, making it worse. He was smoking a joint in the basement after the funeral, blowing the smoke out of the window and laughing. I was so numb, I didn't even react. My grandfather was the only man in my life who had never disappointed me, and his death hurt me to the core. I really turned off a lot of things after that. I stopped listening to my mother and grandmother. I really shut down. I was very angry, yet you know, focused on my career at the same time. For a time, I would ride around the city on buses with guns in my pockets just for the hell of it. Then I'd go to the studio and knock out another cut for my album, Radio. It was crazy. I was 16 years old, and I thought I was grown, but I was a very troubled young man. I was also in a beef with my grandmother over school. She didn't, have a, she didn't give a damn about rap. If it meant I might give up school, she wanted me to finish, and that was that. She was on me every day about it. I was doing shows on the weekend, and I was too exhausted to give up, get up on Mondays and go to school. I also didn't want to go to school because of the jealousy I had to face. Every day, I had guys in my face who wanted to fight me just because, you know, and yeah, I was down to fight, but after a while, I just got tired of fighting for no reason. I also felt that I wasn't learning anything there. School was too slow for me, so I made up my mind that I was just going to make music and make money. I had money in my pocket, a VCR, TV. I figured I was doing better without school, but I was wrong. My grandmother was on point as usual. She knew that no matter what happened in my music career, having a diploma was important. I wish I had listened to her. She felt that I was not making enough money in the music industry and she did not want to give me up didn't want me to give up on myself. I only had one record at the time and I thought that was all I needed. I was thinking if my grandfather were alive, he'd understand. He wouldn't be on my back like this. He probably would have been he probably would have been though, you know, looking back. My grandmother was just fed up with me, fed up with fighting. She was giving me an ultimatum. Either make school my priority or get out. Well, I left, stuffed all my things into a green hefty bag, my clothes, sneakers, hats, of course, some peanut butter and jelly that I took out of her kitchen cabinet. Ironically, even with a record and an upcoming album, I had no one to turn to. I hadn't gotten my advance yet. My mom's was sticking by her mother's decision, so I was literally homeless. What did I do? I slept on the trains for two weeks. I would hang out all night at noon. I would hop on the E-line at Hillside Avenue riding back and forth from Queens to Manhattan and napping until rush hour. It was the same routine every day. I hardly bathed, brushed my teeth, or anything. If I stopped by a friend's house, I would ask to use their bathroom and try to brush my teeth with a washcloth and throw on some deodorant over the funk. I was just nasty. And so were the trains. You never know how nasty the trains are until you have to sleep on them, but I was so full of venom, pain, and just full of myself, full of pride that I didn't care. I would go to Russell's office looking crazy with my hefty bag. Cornell finally saw me and was like, what the hell is going on with you? I told him. He offered me a spot in his basement. He didn't ask for money or anything. Cornell was from uptown, Harlem, but he lived in a small house in Ozone Park, Queens. I chilled in his basement and listened to New Edition records to see if I could pick with which one would be their hot single. I stayed with him for the ne next few months. And it was there in his dusty basement that I finished all the writing for my first album.
Cornell saved me. He gave me a lot more than an alternative to the subways, too. I always wanted to go out to eat. McDonald's was one of my favorite spots. Later, when I first started touring abroad, the first thing I would do would be to check if there was a McDonald's. And even today, I might pop into a McDonald's for a Big Mac, a Coke, and an apple pie. Back then, I was in there every day. Cornell would say to me, Why are you wasting all your money like that? You'd be better off if you got some ground beef from the supermarket for the same money you're spending at McDonald's, and one day you can have hamburgers for a week. My man didn't just tell me, he showed me. Cornell made the best greasy, sloppy hamburgers around. He also taught me little tricks of the trade, like stage presence, how to command an audience. He taught me how to project my voice and keep it strong. He taught me how to breathe. Cornell also taught me karate and how to stretch. He had danced with the Elvin Ailey dance troupe back then, and he knew a lot of techniques. He also taught me that when I'm performing, you know, I really get out of breath to just smile real hard and breathe through my teeth. What I learned from Cornell, though, most was sincerity and true friendship. I learned about unconditional love. People don't know how to be sincere when you have money. They only know how to be sincere when you're both broke. It's that simple. If you have any money, nobody is your friend. It's unfortunate, and it's sad, but it's true. Cornell, he was different. Oh my God, 16-year-old LL Cool J goes homeless, writes his new album in Cornell's basement. I mean, come on. I want to see a picture of Cornell. I, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't found one quite yet, but uh, <laughs> he sounds amazing. Um, LL, man, just, uh, he's just getting in there. I can't wait to see how the story unfolds, you know. So look out for that. I don't know when it's going to be. We'll see if I get a guest for next week. I probably will. You know me. I'm a resourceful chap. And, uh, man, yeah, if you want to find me, uh, I'll be back in New York. You know, uh, Wednesday night I'm playing um, in Phoenix at the Marquee Theater, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, that's August 21st, I believe. Uh, and then I'll be around hanging around at FYF Fest in LA before I go back to New York so um, find me there on August 30th I'll be doing a show at Knitting Factory with Rewards and Son of Stan that's going to be really fun the doors are at midnight the music starts at midnight it's going to be great so uh, yeah prepare yourself for a good time if you're in New York that night um, beyond that I'll just be, uh, I'll be all over the place. I'll be in your, at the bottom of your cereal box. I'll be uh, in your kitchen cupboard when you open it. I will be under the hood of your car. And uh, I'll be like that creepy clown doll in Poltergeist and sweep you under your bed when you stand up in the middle of a dark, rainy night. Because this is Nocturnal Emotions, everybody. Have a great week. I love you. Harmar Superstar, Sleepy Time Out, Booba Ba. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Aukerman. For more information, visit Earwolf.com. Radio.com.
The Wolf Dead. 